Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're pressing on in our series on the life of Jacob with James Jordan. Here, Jordan's going to be discussing Genesis chapter 36 and the descendants of Edom, or Esau. Here, Jordan does a fantastic job of taking a chapter that looks like a bunch of names and places and shows how fascinating and helpful it really is. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening in to this episode. And here is James Jordan discussing Genesis chapter 36. We'll be in this last section of the actual Jacob narrative today, Genesis 36. I think you'll find that this chapter has a lot more in it than you might think. It's boring just to read over, but I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Just begin to read it here, again from the Fox translation, so we have a little Hebrew hearing. Chapter 36, these are the beginnings of Esau, Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the women of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Oholivamah, daughter of Anna, and granddaughter of Sivon the Hittite, and Basimat, daughter of Yishmael, and sister of Nebaiot. Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, Basimat bore Reuel, Olivamah bore Yeush, Yalam, and Korah. These are Esau's sons who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Well, that's enough. The whole chapter reads pretty much this way. Why is this here and what's it doing? Well, in the first place, as we've looked at the structure of the Jacob narrative, this section matches the genealogy of Ishmael in chapter 25, 12 to 18. If we start at the center of the Jacob narrative, then as we work our way outward, we come to these genealogies, the genealogy of Ishmael and one of Esau here at the end. So that's part of how it fits, why it's here. Also, way back at the beginning, I pointed out that the book of Genesis can be seen as moving through seven days, and the generations or offspring of Esau is here in this chapter, and the generations or offspring of Jacob is in the next chapter, chapter 37, verse 2. And, of course, those two are twins, and so these sections can be seen as paired and introducing the last section and the seventh day, so to speak. Now, man rebelled against God on the seventh day, did not enter into God's rest. Of course, Joseph does bring us into enthroned rest at the end of the book. And there's a kind of a rest here, a counterfeit rest, we may say, that Esau or Edom comes to. And this, again, is just review. This is something we looked at a long time ago. But the Sabbath rest theme is clear in the story of Joseph. We come to rest. We're ruining the world. We're enthroned. There's food for everybody. The food that's in the garden and that Adam and Eve had on the seventh day and mistook is now we've got bread for the entire world that Joseph is providing which is the tree of life. Adam and Eve passed up the tree of life to go to the tree of knowledge. And when Joseph gives bread to the world, that is the tree of life. Wine is the tree of knowledge. 
in terms of symbolism. The generations of Esau here point to the fall of man, which also happened on the Sabbath. And so that's the other eschatology. Thus, a false Sabbath rest is given to Esau as he multiplies and takes control, while a true Sabbath rest is given to the godly. So those are larger considerations, but then there are a lot of specific things here that are useful and instructive. If you pay attention to this chapter, it will give you a lot of information for later on in the Bible. And so that's one of the things that we'll do here is to show how the material provided here is kind of foundational for some stuff that's later on. Some of it's just hinted at. Some of it's quite specific. So starting in verse 1, these are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Generations of begettings of what came forth from him. This is an introductory statement in each of these sections in Genesis. What came forth from something. In Genesis chapter 2, we have the generations of the heavens and the earth. Well, the generations of the heavens and the earth is Adam. Adam is made of dust and the spirit breathes into him, so he is an offspring of the marriage of heaven and earth, of the spirit and dust. And in each case, what comes forth from someone is the way this is initiated. And he goes back theologically to the fact that the father begets the son. The son comes from the father in a mystery, and this is copied in humanity, and that is a theme throughout the whole book of Genesis. Genesis is all about Genesis, beginnings, begettings. It's a book about sons brought forth from fathers by the miraculous power of the Spirit, because repeatedly... No son is possible unless the Spirit does a miracle. But it's the Spirit who brings this about. The Father sends the Spirit to bring the Son, and then the Son sends the Spirit to bring us back to the Father. Genesis is concerned with that first motion, this bringing into being of a son. And we get to a climax of it in Exodus chapter 4, where Moses is sent to Pharaoh and says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. All of this is the generations of sons down to a son for God, which eventually, of course, is Jesus. But it's a major theme in Genesis. So this is what comes out of Esau. And we know that Esau is bad. But what comes out of him is going to be bad unless there's an intervention of grace. I think that we're leaving Esau here. As far as I know, Esau doesn't show up again in Genesis. And as we continue with the life of Jacob, and we'll have to move into the Joseph narrative in order to finish out the life of Jacob, we're not going to run into Esau again. So just a few summary comments on him that will lead into the themes that are in this chapter and actually what the theme of the chapter is. Remember that Esau is the evil twin, the counterfeit of Jacob. And this counterfeiting is an important theme. When you read about Esau or Edom in the Bible, the prophecies against Edom, as we'll see in just a minute, you are talking about a counterfeit of Israel. It's not just some nation that's bad. It's specifically a counterfeit of Israel. And that's what Esau is. He is the evil twin. I'll remind you that in the Bible there are three great enemies. There's the garden enemy. The garden is the sanctuary and false priests are an enemy of God. Adam is a false priest. He misleads Eve. Isaac is a false priest. He doesn't deal rightly with his sons. He doesn't obey. In the New Testament, the Jews, the circumcision, and the Sanhedrin are that enemy. They put Jesus on trial. They put Paul on trial. 
The second enemy is the land enemy, which are false kings, false brothers. Cain in the land murders Abel. Esau in the land is attacking Jacob. Herod, the Edomite, attacks Jesus. And another Herod later on puts Paul on trial. So that's the second enemy. In Revelation, we saw that was the land beast, essentially. And then there's the sea beast in the world, false prophets in the world. The sin here is intermarriage, tendency to compromise with the Gentiles, and that was the Sethites before the flood. And the Romans in the New Testament. Pilate, the third group that puts Jesus on trial. And, of course, Paul stands before Festus. So both the Jews, the Edomites, and the Romans are involved in Acts as well as the three enemies. Now, the three threats are idolatry in the sanctuary led by false priests. The priests will lead you into idolatry. And so God is continually warning in the Scripture the priests are not to become involved in idolatry and false worship. They better not mislead the people into false worship. That's the first kind of sin. Listening to Satan and worshiping God, worshiping the false way, ultimately worshiping Satan. Then their second threat is murder in the land. Cain murders Abel. Murder at the hand of evil brothers is the second kind of threat, and that's in society. And then the third major threat is seduction in the world from evil women. And, of course, women here means the other person that you want to get in covenant involvement with, like in Proverbs. The king in Proverbs is told to listen to lady wisdom and not to harlot folly. And at the end of Proverbs, you got a description of lady wisdom. She buys a field and she makes clothes and she gets up early in the morning and all this. That's obviously not a description of a Christian housewife. Nobody could do all that stuff unless she was very wealthy. But it's not intended for that. It's another description of lady wisdom. Well, who is lady wisdom? Well, it's not a female. Lady wisdom that the king is supposed to be involved with and is supposed to marry and is a right associate or wife, help meet for the king, is the company of the wise. Listen to the company of the wise. Listen to the wise men. Listen to the wise people in your society. That's who Lady Wisdom is. She's a personification of the wise in society. And that's who the king should marry, and that's who Rehoboam needs to listen to. And those are the people who will rise up early and make a beautiful house for God and do all the things in Proverbs 31. And the harlot in Proverbs are the foolish in Israel. And that's why the middle part of Proverbs just goes through all these contrasts between the foolish and the wise. But Lady Wisdom and Harlot Folly are personifications of these people, primarily. So Proverbs, again, you can be seduced by other people. You can get involved with a pagan wife or husband. But more than that, if you're a king, you can listen to all the foolish people. What does Rehoboam do? He listens to all the foolish people instead of listening to the wise. Instead of going for a lady wisdom, the company of the wise, he goes to harlot folly, all the young men who grew up with him and rejects the wisdom. That's what seduction in the world is all about. Well, Edom and Esau is in the second area. They claim to be false priests, but primarily their relationship with Israel is that of evil brothers, murderous. And they carry forth Cain and Abel. The prophecy of Obadiah, which I'd just like to glance at, is the summary of the judgments upon Edom. And we're not going to read the whole thing, but what's of interest to us, to me, and therefore you have to listen to it, 
is how God in Obadiah sets forth Esau or Edom as a counterfeit. The things that are said here are all historically true, but the fact that they're selected and other things are not selected has additional meaning. For instance, in verse 3, and they're listed here, he says about Edom, Yahweh Adonai, Yahweh the Master, says concerning Edom, verse 3, The arrogance of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock. Now, as a matter of fact, as some of you know, some of the cities of the Edomites were in fact carved out of cliffs, and they were dwelling in stones. The city Petra, Petra means rock. It was a rock city. And the whole city basically was carved out of rock, mountainside. So that's true. But you see, in the Bible, Moses was hidden in a rock, in the cleft of a rock. And Elijah was hidden in the cleft of a rock when God appeared to him. And this was when God made them priests and kings and put them over his people. And to select this piece of information about Edom is to say, yeah, you're counterfeits of Moses and Elijah. You claim to be the true people of God, and you're not. Then in verse 4, Though you build high like the eagle and set your nest among the stars, from there I'll bring you down. Well, that's clear enough as it stands, but when we remember that the promise to Abraham was that you will be like the sand of the sea and like the stars, and the book of Numbers portrays Israel as a company of stars and as a heavenly host repeatedly, then here again, Edom is a counterfeit. They claim to be among the stars. They claim to be the true Israel. Then in verse 6, Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. Well, if you have a city made of rocks, your treasures hid back in those caves are hidden all right. But again, Israel has the hidden treasures, which are locked up in the Holy of Holies. The glorified person, which is Aaron's rod, and the complete word of God, which gives you wisdom, and the pot of manna, which gives you life, those are the ultimate treasures, and they're hidden. Israel has the real hidden treasures. Esau's hidden treasures are counterfeits. And those counterfeit treasures have to do with wisdom. Verse 8, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men from Edom? The Edomites were famous for being wise. But there again, that's the counterfeit of Solomon and of the wisdom in the Bible. Their wisdom wasn't real wisdom. And then as we come to the climax, he says, The deliverers will send Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau. Esau has a mountain. Of course, they do. They dwell in Petra. They dwell in these mountainous cliffs. They dwell in high places and in the hills. But the contrast is with Mount Zion. Verse 16, You drank on my holy mountain. Verse 17, On Mount Zion there will be those who escape. Contrast. Their mountain is a counterfeit of God's holy mountain. So that's who Esau is. Esau is this counterfeit of Israel. And they claim to be priests, and they claim to be wise, and they claim to speak for God. And that's their position. And when you read about Esau later on in the Bible, or Edom, and their murderous attempts to deal with Israel, a lot of it is a continuing scandal. We're the real people of God, and they're offended and angered at the claim of the Israelites to be the true priests. They're maintaining this. So that's just a little overview of who Esau and Edom are as we depart. Now we can look at the theme in this chapter, 
And I'll just tell you, because we won't get it all done today, the theme in this chapter is that Esau gets everything before Jacob does. But over the long haul, Jacob winds up with everything and Esau winds up with nothing. And that's the theme in the Bible, that the wicked build their cities first and our cities come last, but ours endure and theirs don't. The wicked lay up an inheritance for the righteous. They do a bunch of work and we inherit it all. That's in the background of this chapter and it specifically comes up in a number of ways. And because that's a prominent theme in the book of Genesis as a whole, we'll want to see how it works out here. To begin with here in verse 2, we have a review of these wives. And way back when we took this up before, because the wives have different names here from what they had earlier in the text, in chapter 26, Esau took wives from the women of Canaan, Ada, daughter of Alon the Hittite, and Aholabama, daughter of Anna, and granddaughter of Tsivon the Hittite, and Basimath, daughter of Ishmael, and sister of Nebaioth. And I've got here the correlations back in chapter 26. The whole Obama was called Judith. And back in chapter 26, Ada, Bath, Bath means daughter of, Ben means son of. So Ada, Bath, Helon is the same as Basimath, Bath, Elon, the Hittite. And in chapter 26, the Basimath of this chapter is called Mahalath. These names have meanings. Mahalath means mild. And she's also called Basimath, and she's the daughter of Ishmael, fragrant. Basimath, which means fragrant, is also Ada, which means an ornament. She's daughter of Elon. And Judith seems to be a Holabama. Judith means praise, and a Holabama means tent on a high place. Bama, high place. And Ohola is tent. Tent and Oholi is my tent. Ohel is tent. Oholi is my tent. Bama is high place. I think this points to false worship. Worship on a high place and praise of a false god. And the fact that she's got this kind of name has hinted even to some that she might have been a temple prostitute. I mean, that's going to show up again in one of the very next stories in the Bible where Judah visits Tamar, who is dressed as a cult prostitute. And so we know that they were around. And so her father is called Beri the Hittite or Anna the Hivite. And again, it's a matter of what these names mean. Beri the Hittite doesn't have to be a name. It can just be his occupation. The Hittite well man, Hivites, would be his actual lineage, even if he was living in a Hittite culture and his occupation was to dig wells. His name was Anna. Interesting, as I pointed out way back, two of the names had to do with odor or scent. Esau is like his father following his nose. Isaac went with what smelled good to him. He was smelling Jacob as he was dressed like Esau to figure out who he was. They liked the taste of the food, and of course that has to do with smell. The only thing you taste is salt, sweet, bitter, sour, hot, and cold. That's the only thing you taste. Every other flavor that you taste is coming through your nose. And so what makes chicken taste different from asparagus is not your taste buds, but your sense of smell. Your taste buds can just tell if it's bitter or sweet, salt or sour, hot or cold. So that sense of smell here seems to be a connection with the theme in the passage. So that's just, again, to summarize, we spent a little bit more time on this back in chapter 26 when we did it before. 
But here it is again, and that's who these names are. Now we come to the sons, and we move into the chapter itself. Verses 4 and 5. Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, Bashamath bore Ruel, and Aholabama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. Now these are Esau's sons who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Five sons here. Five is the number of the hand and of power in the Bible. Sometimes you got twelve sons. The numbers here in this passage are going to be important, as we'll see. Five sons is power. So even though he doesn't have twelve sons like Jacob does, he has an important way of full complement, a warrior's handful, a squad. When Israel came out of Egypt, it says they came out in martial array. In Hebrew, it says they came out five in a rank. And even today, if you're in the army, you have a squad of ten men and the sergeant is over the squad, and he has four men under him, and he has a corporal, and the other four men are under him. So a group of five is a standard thing even today in the military, and it was then. So there's an implication of power here in these five sons. He may have had other sons. He may have had other daughters. In fact, it says he has daughters, but they're not listed. But this is what the text wants us to know, that there were five. Now we come to something really interesting. And it's just buried here, and if you've always skipped this chapter because it looked like a genealogy, then you've missed something that's really important and helpful. Esau took his wives, his sons and his daughters, and all the persons in his household, as well as all of his acquired livestock, all his animals, and all his acquisitions that he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went to another land away from Jacob his brother, for their property was too great for them to settle together, The land of their sojourning could not support them on account of all their livestock that they had acquired. Now those two sentences are almost identical quotations from two earlier sentences in the book. If we go back to chapter 37, 17 to 18, and you can't miss this if you're hearing this text over and over again. So Jacob arose, he lifted his children and his wives onto camels and led away all his livestock, all the property that he had gained the acquired livestock that he had acquired as he gained it in the country of Aram and came home to Isaac his father in the land of Canaan. That's almost the same as what we read here. Esau took his wife, sons and daughters, all the persons, acquired livestock, animals that he gained in the land of Canaan and went to another land away from Jacob his brother. And then this other statement here, their property was too much for them to settle together because the land could not support them. It's almost identical to chapter 13, verse 6, which says concerning Lot and Abraham, the land could not support them to settle together, for their property was so great that they were not able to settle together. The land could not support them. So Lot separates. These allude to things that are very important. Esau departs from the land of Canaan, which means that the land of Canaan is now the possession of Jacob. See, we didn't know this really. But now we're told it explicitly, and it's highlighted for us by giving us the same language. Initially, Jacob was driven out of the land. Now, Esau is driven out of the land. Initially, Esau got to have the land. Esau got to stay home with Rebekah and Isaac. And Jacob had to leave. And it looked like Esau was going to inherit everything. And Esau got to live in the land of Canaan. And Esau acquired property in the land of Canaan. And Esau had sons and daughters in the land of Canaan. And obviously Esau was going to get to have the land of Canaan. And Jacob 
He was over in Patton Aram. Ah, but that's only the first part of the story. The wicked get there first, but the righteous get there last. Which would you rather have? Get there first and lose it? Or get there last and keep it forever? Now, he leaves. All the stuff he got in Canaan, he has to take out to Seir. And Jacob, who's gotten wives and livestock and property over in the land of Aram, he comes in and he gets the land of Canaan. Of course, he's going to leave it too to go to Egypt, but for the next 20 years, Jacob lives there in the land of Canaan. And so it looked as if Esau would inherit, but now at the end, Esau has to leave and God's promises are fulfilled. And here we see this byplay that the wicked get there first. Cain built the first city, but that city is Babylon ultimately, and it's going to go and the last city is the one that's going to endure, and Jesus builds that, Jerusalem. The wicked get there first. The first musicians, Jubal. The first workers in metal, Tubalcane. First guys to do agriculture, Jabal. All in the line of Cain. They get everything first. They don't hold it. We get it last. That's better. But it means that for the short haul, it looks like we're behind. If you go by sight instead of by faith, the wicked prosper. Looks like they're doing great and God is blessing them. You have to go by faith. Yeah, Esau's got it for a while. Esau's prospering in the land of Canaan. Looks like he's going to inherit the promises. Nope. But we know by faith he's not and he doesn't. Now everything else in this chapter has the same meaning. Another thing that I think that we can see as a hint here, Jacob acquires things from the Gentiles. He acquires sons and daughters and livestock and persons and camels, male and female servants, and he brings them to the promised land. Now, that's a picture of evangelism. Go out and gather from the Gentiles and bring them in. Esau gets a bunch of things in the land of promise, and he takes them away. This is a picture of apostasy. Esau leads things away from God's land, Jacob brings things to God's land. I think that's an additional depth dimension here as a contrast between what it means for Jacob and Israel to be true priests to the nations, to bring them to God, and Esau to be the enemy of Israel and a counterfeit priest who is actively leading people away from God. That contrast is implied here. And, of course, it becomes much more specific later on in the prophets as we get more and more contrast between Jacob and Esau. Then there's the comparison with Lot. The land wasn't strong enough to sustain both Abraham and Lot. This land is still not really ready for the blessing of God. It's not going to be for 400 years. It's not a cooperative land. We saw this before. There keep being famines here that drive the people out. Land isn't rich enough to sustain them. And God says to Abraham in Genesis 15, not for 400 years am I going to make this land cooperate with you. Meanwhile, you'll be dwelling here as strangers and the land is not going to be very cooperative. That curse that's in the soil is going to continue to cause you trouble until you come out of Egypt and it's a land that flows with milk and honey and then the land will cooperate with you and prosper you. Meanwhile, the land isn't very productive. And so there's not enough for Lot and Abraham to live together. And where does Lot go? He goes to Sodom. Sodom, Gomorrah, Adba, Zeboim, and Bela. That is Zoar. The five cities of the circle of the Jordan 
which is where the Dead Sea is now, they're under the Dead Sea. This was a very prosperous area. Looked like a nice place. Genesis 13 says it was like the Garden of Eden and like the land of Egypt, like the land of Goshen. These very well-watered, idyllic places where he looks like he'll prosper. But unfortunately, the wicked are there. Lot moves away to Sodom. Esau moves away from Jacob to Seir. This almost identical language here forces us to compare the two. Could have been written a different way. He could have just says, Canaan moved away to the land of Canaan, away from Jacob, his brother, because they didn't want to live with him. Or just said that. Didn't have to say anything. But then it says, the property was too much for him to settle together because the land would not support them because they had too much. Well, that's almost exactly what it says with regard to Lot and Abraham. So we're supposed to compare. And Lot, he goes to Sodom, which is not good. And his children wind up intermarrying with the people of Sodom, and he loses his children. Esau is going to Seir. He's going to conquer Seir, and he's going to intermarry with the Seirites, and that's going to corrupt them even further. So there are explicit parallels, and what this means, again, symbolically, is that, well, what happens with Lot? Lot winds up with two children as a result of incest and his daughters, and they are the Moabites and the Ammonites. And they come from Sodom. And Moab and Ammon in the Bible symbolize the extension of Sodom down through history. You read about Moabites and Ammonites, think to yourself, this is the city of Sodom continuing in history. Because these children of incest and degeneracy are the extension of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in fact, the book of Zephaniah says that explicitly, that they are. Well, the same thing is said here. The Edomites are an extension of Sodom. Because what happens with Esau is the same thing that happened with Lot. He makes the same choice. It's not the same symbolism, but it has the same basic meaning. Sodom and Gomorrah are followed forward in Esau and Edom. And they have a slightly different nuance of meaning from Ammon and Moab, but a similar one. And this counterfeiting. Finally, there's another aspect of counterfeiting here, or parallel. Parallels that imply contrasts. Here's the Jordan River, and I guess the Dead Sea is starting to form by this time, since Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed about a century earlier. So the Jordan doesn't go down any further. Well, Jacob is going to be heading down here to Egypt. And what is Esau doing? He's heading over here to Seir. Seir is on the west but south, and that's where Edom is going to be. So both of them are moving south, actually, and one is going to peel off to the east to Seir, and the other is going to peel off to the west toward Egypt. So there's parallels and contrasts, and these things serve to show, again, Edom is not some strange nation. Edom is a counterfeit foil for Israel and will be throughout the entire biblical narrative all the way down to the book of Revelation through Herod and the Herods and Acts and the land beast in Revelation. I'll just point out to you something that's prominent in this chapter as well. It's a technical point. Verse 8, Esau is Edom, it says. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau, that is Edom. And verse 1, the same. These are the beginnings of Esau, that is Edom. These are probably insertions into the text by a later hand. You had 
Joseph or someone wrote this. Then someone came in later on under the divine inspiration and added in, okay, make sure you understand we're talking about Edom here. So it puts these parenthetical statements in. And as we'll see probably next week, under divine inspiration, Samuel or someone came in later on and listed all the kings of Edom down to the time of Solomon. So whoever wrote Genesis first, I think Joseph probably wrote it. Moses probably edited it. But there are some other things added in from time to time. And this chapter has that with this list of kings that go on down into the future. And there's no reason to be surprised at that. The Bible never says Moses wrote Genesis. And it never indicates that these books were absolutely completed. They were perfectly inerrant and infallible in their first form. And then if Samuel was inspired to add another paragraph or two in, that was also inerrant and infallible. And until the canon closed, there's no reason to be shocked that there might be a parenthetical statement or two added into the text to bring it up to date. So I think that's part of what's going on here, and I thought I'd point it out as we read this through together. Now we come to verse 8. Esau lived in the hill country. I want to comment on this hill country business. It's useful to point out here. Again, this is almost unnecessary. This whole area down here is all mountains, and the reader knows that these are mountains. And so to say hill country is almost superfluous, and we can ask ourselves, well, why is this specifically included? And really, the term hill country occurs repeatedly in the Bible. We read about the hill country of the Amalekites, the hill country of the Ephraimites. And of course, it's geographically accurate, but it also points to a location nearer to heaven. There's a distinction between low-lying places and high ground in the Bible. And you want to get up near to God, you go up on a mountain. You build an altar, which is a symbolic mountain. And the Bible talks about going up on the altar, even if the altar is just a little thing right here. When you approach an altar, it's as if you're going up a mountain. You are ascending, getting nearer to God, nearer to heaven, and then coming back down. And this up and down business, of course, we saw it with Jacob and the ladder to heaven, but it's also when you go up a mountain to worship. Well, what about this hill country in high places? Well, there are valid hill countries and invalid hill countries. There are true high places and false high places. There's altars that are put up by Abraham or Samuel on high places. Then there are wicked altars that are put on high places. During the time that the tabernacle was in operation from Moses to Samuel, it was forbidden to worship on high places. You could go up and have a personal prayer to God, but you were not allowed to offer incense or sacrifice on a high place. Once the tabernacle was torn apart in the days of Samuel, high places were okay again until the temple was built. After the temple was built, it was forbidden to worship on high places again. You're supposed to worship at the temple. The temple was put on Mount Zion. So you've got true mountains and false mountains, true high places and false high places, true hill countries and false hill countries. And again, to point to Esau in a hill country is indicating something, I think. There's a hint of it in the text. Notice that Jacob is moving to Egypt, which is a low and flat country. There aren't any mountains there except the ones you bake yourself. The Egyptians didn't have any mountains, so they made their own. So you need a mountain as a place where you contact God. There aren't any mountains there, so they made their own, as you know. But it's all very flat. But here, 
They're going to hill country. Well, Jacob is eventually going to get to hill country. Jacob is going to wind up on Mount Zion and with the Mount of Olives, which is even higher than Mount Zion, and Mount Tabor and Mount Carmel and all these other mountains. And there's going to be the hill country of Ephraim, and hill country, the other places. They're going to get there, but not right away. Esau gets there first. Esau gets to the high ground, the high ground, where you are closer to God, or you think you are, and that's your inheritance. If you think of yourself as priests, if you think of yourself as worshiping God, any God, and you get to be on the mountains, you get your mountains first, then you're getting something first, and then God's people get it later on. They get to come to Mount Zion, whereas, as we saw in Obadiah, Edom will be cast down out of its mountains. They're going to be thrown out of these mountains and made to leave. And as a matter of fact, when Israel sins, what does Ezekiel say? I'm going to kill all of you people who worship on the high places and scatter your bones around. And he drags them off to the Euphrates River, which is another low-lying, flat area. There aren't any mountains in the Euphrates and Tigris Delta. That's where they are. They're taken out of their high place and brought down here into a low place of exile and then returned to the mountains of Israel. So that theme is there. And the main thing I wanted to stress with you is Edom gets its mountains first. But they don't last forever. Our mountains come later and they last forever. Okay, Harold. Jim, is there any other significance? seems I remember somewhere in the book of Genesis that I can't find it right now that... Esau moved in here and basically displaced Oval or Purple. Yeah, that's coming up. And then, of course, Jacob later on, his descendants will move in where they go and they'll drive out or take over the Canaanites or whatever, all the Ikes in there. Yeah, that's coming up. You remember rightly. That's one of the paragraphs in this chapter here. And that's exactly the right comparison, I think, that Esau drives out his Horites first, and then Jacob comes and drives out the Canaanites later. Everything happens with Esau first, and they have their own conquest of their own new land first. But we'll get to that next week, I'm sure, because we're not going to have time for it today. Now we have the sons of Eliphaz, the sons of Ruel, which are these first two sons, and then we don't get any sons from Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. We don't get sons, grandsons of Esau listed from Aholabama. And I think there's a reason for that, which maybe we can get to. But here on page 137, the sons of Eliphaz, who was the son of Esau and Ada, Eliphaz plus some wife, and he has Teman and Omar and Sepho and Gadam and Kenaz. Two of those names are important. And then we are specifically told the name of Eliphaz's concubine, Timnah, because she was a princess of Seir. And when we conquer the Horites in Seir and we reduce them to bondage, and we just take one of the princesses as a concubine. And so we're going to find that out later on in the chapter, but here we're given her name so that when we find her name later on as a princess of Seir and we see that she's been reduced in status, She's not an endowed wife, she's just a slave wife. Then that's part of this conquest motif that's going on here in the chapter. And their offspring is Amalek. And that's, of course, a very pregnant name in the Bible. Three of these names are important. First, T-Man. I've spelled it the conventional way here in your notes. T-Man came to be a district in the land of Edom. I don't know which one. 
I'm not sure anybody knows, but we knew that though there were various districts in this land of Seir or Edom, and Teman came to be the name of one of them, probably where this guy and his clan settled. And in Job, you have Eliphaz the Temanite. Well, Eliphaz is obviously an Esau name here, and Teman is an Esau name, so almost certainly Eliphaz the Temanite is from there, and thus an Edomite, probably a descendant of the original Eliphaz through the original Teman. So that's a connection. Very few people doubt that. I mean, you can always say, well, we don't know for sure. It could be a different team man, and it could be a different Eliphaz. And yeah, I guess it could. He could have been from Scandinavia or somewhere, but it's not likely. It's most likely that he is an Edomite, and that plays into what's going on in Job, because he leads this attack on Job. He's the first one who speaks. And the first thing he says is, what does Eliphaz say in Job? The first thing he says Well, Esau, remember, are counterfeit of Israel. They claim that they have the revelation from God. They claim that God speaks to them. They claim that they're the priests. And Eliphaz, the first thing he says, this is where it starts with Job. He says, during the night, the Spirit of God appeared to me and told me that you're guilty and told me that we're supposed to kill you if you don't repent. Now, that's where it starts. People have the impression that in Job, you know, they get meaner and meaner as the speeches go. But really, Eliphaz starts off right at the top and says, you know, God told me in a dream of the night, you either repent or we're going to take care of you. See, that's very Esau-like. It's not only attack, but it's an attack by someone who claims to have priestly mediatorial position, the counterfeit of Israel. So I think that we're given information here, Eliphaz, T-man, that plugs us in and is helpful later on when we get to Job and tells us something about who Eliphaz was and why he thought the way he did and what he thought he was doing as a counterfeit of Israel, somebody who claimed to have a true relationship with God. And of course, at the end of Job, uh, when Job prays for him, and we have an indication that Eliphaz is going to be redeemed for the kingdom later on, but at the beginning of Job, he is not coming on the way he should. Then we have another very interesting name here, Kenaz. Kenaz is the father of the Kenizzites. And part of this clan converted and became part of the tribe of Judah under the leadership of Caleb the Kenizzite. People, I don't think, always know this, but when we talk about Joshua and Caleb, Caleb was a descendant of Esau. For while we know, Caleb and his people were not slaves in Egypt. They joined with Israel in the wilderness. And Caleb is a kind of a true Esau standing shoulder to shoulder with Joshua, the true Israelite. There's a nice touch there that here we have Jacob and Esau standing together as friends against everybody else. And Caleb is adopted into the clan of Judah. And these Kenizzites, there are other Kenizzites, just as they're true Midianites and false Midianites, they're true Kenizzites and wicked Kenizzites. But this group of Kenizzites under Caleb, they are incorporated into Israel. They're circumcised and become part of the priestly nation at the time of the exile. Now, this Kenaz here, grandson of Esau, one of his descendants, a clan of his descendants, are brought back into Israel. And then finally, there's Amalek. And I don't think we need to say much about that. Amalek became the greatest enemy of Israel, kind of a sharp edge of Edom. We want to know where the point man of Edom was in attacking Israel is Amalek. And God says, I don't like Edom, but I'm going to war against Amalek forever. And you can trace Amalek down to the time of Saul, Agag, king of the Amalekites, 
Saul has to fight him, and he spares Agag, and then David has to fight the Amalekites, and you come on down to the book of Esther, Haman, the Agagite, is an Amalekite, and that's an attack. So this continues on, and all of this is part of Esau. Of course, Amalek attacked us when we came out of Egypt. Get across the Red Sea, first thing you got to do is face Amalek. And Moses had to hold his hands up to defeat the Amalekites. That's the Amalekite battle there in Exodus 17. So here it is, Amalek. He's a half-breed between the pagans of Seir and the apostates of Esau. And then in verse 13, we have the sons of Ruel, and they're listed, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. And these are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. And then in verse 14, we have listed again, these are sons of Aholabama, daughter of Anan, granddaughter of Sivan, Esau's wife. She bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah to Esau. And that's it. No grandsons are mentioned here. Well, when we go to the next section, which we'll have to do next week, this family arrangement here are divided up into clans. And we'll find, on top of page 138, I'll mention this because it needs to complete it out, we'll find that there's one more clan in addition to these names we've just looked at. The sons of Eliphaz, there are six of them. The sons of Ruel, there are four of them. That comes to ten. The sons of Aholabama, that's three more clans, that's thirteen. And then we get probably a grandson of one of these, which means fourteen. Fourteen clans in Esau. Well, there are fourteen tribes in Israel. And so these fourteen clans that Edom gets early in its history anticipate the 14 tribes that we get to once we come into the promised land. And if you don't believe that there are 14 tribes, the information is on page 138. But we'll start there next time. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.